My lips are dry. And my cock is large. It's okay, it's like medium. Hello and welcome to The 250, a podcast that is one of the few productions with a lower budget than this film. I'm Jonathan, and with me as always is my co-host, Douglas. How are you, Douglas? I'm doing very well, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, that's good. Uh, if this is your first time tuning into The 250, I'm just always used, there's always some Something? bullshit. If yeah. this is your first yeah, time sorry. tuning into The 250, we've taken a snapshot of IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, as of January 2020, and we've been watching through them through, we've been watching, we've been watching them from number 250 through to number one. In this podcast, we discuss our opinions, our thoughts, and our reactions to the movies within. Today's movie, number 120, is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Centred around King Arthur and his quest to assemble knights for his round table, he is then given a quest by God to track down the Holy Grail. The knights all then spread out in search where non-sequiturs and silliness ensues. Monty Python and the Holy Grail was directed by Terry Jones, uh, who was involved in lots of other... Monty Python-based... Monty Python stuff, production Films. And Terry Gilliam... Known for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 12 Monkeys, and Las Vegas. I didn't realize that he had a directing oh, yeah, he, career outside Yeah, yeah, of, uh, he directed a bunch of shit Python. straight after um, the, yeah, Holy Grail. He, he was always interested in doing filmmaking and directing and stuff like that. Both Jonathan and I have seen this film before. I've kind of fucked you on the teleprompter there. It's, uh, I meant to oh. write Brazil, but I just wrote, Las Vegas again. <laughs> it's Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, 12 Monkeys, and Brazil was the other film, but I meant to write Douglas, it. Douglas, Jesus Christ. <laughs> They're two places. Um, they are two places. That, you, that is the only thing that unites those two concepts. Exactly. I have been dreading this episode. Why? And the only the reason why is that I know your dad loves this movie. <laughs> And I have I have mixed feelings on wow, it. Wow, okay. But but I don't wanna I don't wanna spoil the I I I I I liked it more than I liked it last time. I enjoyed this film more than I liked it last time. Let's just dive right in. And uh thank you for listening to the two five oh. Um that's all the <laughs> it, I've uh, you've what? given my whole opinion and uh wow, um, yeah. we're just gonna no, record uh, time episode no, for the two five oh I forget how I felt about the life of Brian. Well, why don't we look Everyone on Letterboxd, okay? Jonathan? That will give us a... Oh, don't do that. I'll have some stupid It'll be fucking haiku. Haiku, exactly. That's what I'm looking forward to seeing. You gave it four stars, um, and it wasn't a haiku. This was after you stopped doing your haiku bit. Thank God. You said, I think I had some unconscious hate boner for this film, and after watching it, I can say that it's actually pretty good. Okay. Well, the, the, there you go. That's Monty Python the Holy Grail as well. Wow. <laughs> Just unconscious hate boner for Monty Python in general, or? I think I already had an unconscious hate boner for Monty Python, the Holy Grail, and then that affected my expectations of Life of Brian. By proximity, yeah, affected Life of Brian as well. Hmm. That's fair enough. I think the thing about this movie, it's like there's there's certain pieces of media that are like this where the movie is fine and the fans are unbearable. Right. And this is probably one of the most quoted comedy works out there, probably up, up against like um Princess Bride maybe. Mm. And that just it means that you've heard every bit before said by some dad. <laughs> <laughs> Without the 
production and presentation and physical acting and uh, vocal acting and 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 everything that sort of gives these guys their chops and it just fucking ruins the movie for you <laughs> there is some bits in this that i was just like i really just do not find these funny um and there's some stuff that's that's really actually what i really liked about this Doug's really just letting me fucking run away. I did last week. May as well let you run away again. (laughs) This is the podcast now, baby. Uh, What I really liked was the little details in this film. And I think it's maybe because it's... I I, I almost find it hard to judge the quality of the individual bits because they're so played out. How do you judge them fairly without, you know... it's, It's almost impossible to take into account your existing biases and experiences with the bits even before you've seen the fucking film because you've probably seen half of them already but there's lots of little cute details and sort of minor subplotty type things that are fucking great in this and you you're like yeah these guys are these guys are pretty clever they um they sort of knew what they were doing yeah how do you feel douglas i think about this movie the whole point of holy grail for me is that it's the best anti-movie movie that they're is and probably ever will be. You can't... I really haven't seen a take that is so vehemently against the prospect of making a film and it still being a film, you know what I mean? At every conjunction, the Monty Python boys are constantly either making fun of films, are deconstructing films and just being like, fuck, this is stupid, I hate this, and just finding ways to poke fun at everything and anything that there is about film. And mm. I think that resonated with me a lot more this time because I was paying, as you said, all of the gags and everything have all been, you've heard a lot of them before. So it's, you know, they're there and a lot of them are good. A lot of them are kind of, you, you've heard it so many times now that it's become to the point of like you're hearing a vinyl on repeat and you're just kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, well, all right, that's a thing. But there was a lot of stuff, as you said, the tinier details that really fucking caught me off guard. And I didn't actually, I've seen this film an ungodly amount of times and I didn't even realize some of the gags that I noticed this time around were actually in there because I actually took the time to really, like, really pay attention to everything that was going on. So it was funny that it rewarded that. It's funny that it leans so heavily into its low-budgetedness but also finds ways to be very, very clever and do a lot of interesting and intriguing special effects and everything like that, given its low budget. And then you look into the whole fucking back end of the whole process, and it's like they had written a script and then basically cut 90% of it and then used that 10% and put it in the movie, basically. So interesting. the fact that just everything about this film just seems like such a shit show and it's made from this place of I don't like the people that I'm working with and Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones are just with the it was their feature film debut and they both had no idea what they were doing there was they were completely coasting by the seat of their pants which is the most Monty Python thing I've ever fucking heard of first and foremost but I think it really is kind of just a miracle of a film. It, it, the, the energy that's gone into this just seems like such a tornado of chaos and low budget and 
the the group not really meshing as well as they you perhaps usually do in a more TV show setting, how they do with Flying Circus. It feels like a miracle that this film A took off, B found an audience, and C continues to resonate with audiences today. I think is mind blowing. Yeah. I mean it's a good comedy work. It's um it's just yeah, you just <laughs> get exposed to too much of it, I guess. But yeah, I, I, I think that's probably really valuable, like the the behind the scenes thing. I was wondering if there was maybe a history of medieval era, not medieval era, medieval set films in this point of time, because it seemed like they were aping a lot of- Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those vibes, like, yeah, like your, I mean, even like your Princess Bride. Uh, Princess Bride, I guess, was also quite low budget. Or it wasn't low budget, but it was, um, it lent into that. Uh, look sometimes. It riffed very but heavily off of, you know, like it was labeling itself as being the next greatest epic next to Ben Hur and shit like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it very much, yeah, leaned into toying around with historical legends and things like that and just making a mockery of them and just removing the, the seriousness from them, which I think is yeah a very fun thing to do. Um, I mean, it's it's from the beginning. They the opening uh, it, credits. It, it's playing into so much. Oh, I mean, the opening credits. Sorry. First, maybe we'll we'll wrap back to the credits because mm. they are also good. Mm. But they, from the first person on screen, you've got King Arthur, and they're like, "Yeah, we didn't have any money for horses." Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's just that, like, une- it's not unexplained. I mean, that, that's the other thing. I wrote, oh, like, unexplained. Like, it's obvious why they've done it, but it's unexplained why no one has horses and everyone's just got coconuts. And then it is immediately one of the first the fucking is addressed. <laughs> it's people going, yeah. like, you don't have a horse. What are you it's talking just about? with coconuts. Exactly. And it's, it's so- It's- That reinforces the whole film's, like, just anti-being a movie. If it were a movie- it would lay that there and then not address it and just go, oh, the audience gets that it's, you know, due to low budget that we don't have horses. But it addresses mm. that and makes a bit in and of itself of the lack of horses. It makes a mockery of itself at every fucking turn. And talking about King Arthur, and particularly Graham Chapman, I... Didn't realise how hard Graham Chapman gets thrown under the fucking bus in this movie. Like, especially in the first act. Just every single person he bumps into is just like, you're a fucking twat. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. It's so good for this fucking toffee dude riding around, gallivanting around with a sword and going like, I'm the king, Mm. king of the Britons. And then every single person he bumps into is just be like, fuck off. No, you're not. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Surprisingly, like, anti- Monarchy, yeah, patriarchy, yeah, yeah. British film. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, the- Oh, well, the Monty Python boys were always making jabs and shit at the royal family anyway, so I think that's that was very much um, uh, a part of their bit generation, so yeah, yeah. I'm not particularly surprised. A a bit that I- that will always get me is the- the muck far like the filth farmers in the beginning <laughs> where they're just like slopping mud. But like 
not only is it this huge like joke at like how ridiculous the monarch like a guy who shows up and says he's your king is but also a surprisingly like realistic assessment of like what uh i guess like internet leftists are yeah. now like yep. um as an internet leftist myself uh you, you like the 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 you, you get all your people who've got your communist ideals and stuff and um and have this like insane complicated uh systems and stuff like that and and, and like I, I guess I don't really explain that. There's the, the, the meme of like infighting in amongst like deep leftist circles where everyone's got like a slightly different idea and they're all fucking angry at each other. It's not quite that, but uh it it both makes fun of the monarchy and also makes fun in a way that it seems like they had to have known that a little bit. Like that that's a that's an excellent bit. I guess just cause it is expressly pointing at something. Are we worried about spoilers with this one? Not really. Not particularly. Because I want to talk about my least favourite bit. Only thing we might be able to spoil is, like, jokes, and that's very much if, like, you've been withholding from watching The Holy Grail because you feel like you've seen it before because everyone has been, like, riffing off (laughs) the occasional Holy Grail bit to you and then you've just slowly assembled bits of knowledge of like oh that's from holy grail that's from holy grail i feel like i've seen the movie because i've been fucking basically mansplained every bit that's in it which like <laughs> i can guarantee has happened to people so i you know what let's just- we can we can we get we're like we're like five minutes off spoilers or yeah. something. so let's we can we can dodge it. i want to talk about comfortably my least favorite bit in the film comfortably Easily. Uh, and we will do that after. Okay. So I can hold off on that one. I I mentioned, like, the little bits. And there's also things like ongoing gags, which are normally get really old. But I loved consistently how someone would be, like, being, like, dying. And they'd be like, oh, I'm getting better. And that happens, like, four or five times. And it made me laugh every fucking time. <laughs> and it's just, like, little stuff. Like, when Lancelot like swings on a rope he's like Wee! Yeah. just like out of like nowhere after this after him having this big like spiel uh and my favorite character in the film is uh Bedivere. <laughs> yeah and you do yeah i don't i don't know whose idea it was for him to have this mask <laughs> that is almost completely transparent and he's all the time he's either like lifting it or like He's either got it lifted or he's lifting it and then it cuts to a different angle and he's lifting it again. Like, it, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. It's like the bit in Hot Fuzz where they're running into the supermarket and they're cocking their guns. There's like five yeah. people and you, there's like 30 shotgun cocks <laughs> in like 10 seconds. <laughs> it's the same thing where it's just like completely like unnecessary and ridiculous on such like a tiny fiddly little level. Mm. It's hilarious to mm. me and that those were like the moments that i really really loved in this where like not only do they have these big you know larger scale like, closed bits yeah. jokes as they call them but there's stuff sprinkled in there and and just just dumb shit just all through i, I mean i could keep quoting it i like the bit where there's like a hand flipping through a book and then the at the end of the book like a gorilla <laughs> hand goes <laughs> over the top and pulls the hand away like 
and it's just not there's no, no explanation no further exactly non sequiturs you gotta it's love it and monty python were always the uh, the kings of it they always found just this very peculiar niche of non sequiturs that would always perfectly work and the whole thing with sir bedivere's helmet you cannot help but wonder whether it's uh like a an appropriately added physical gag or whether it is a budget and costume limitation that they'd made the helmet and that he wanted to flip it up and have it stay up there but the more he fiddled with the fucking hinge the more and more it would just go loose so it just end up flopping back onto his face again yeah 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 uh but either way it's hilarious no matter which way you split it no matter which side of the coin you're looking at it's gonna be funny. So yeah, there's um a bit of a, 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 and I think this is this like leads into how the film is like poking fun at lots of different stuff. And I mean, it's it's almost like a bit of a comedy staple in general. But I do remember like there's there's like different flavors of film that 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 they're also aping on. There's the bit with I think it's Galahad where he's like he's like pushing through the forest and it's got like shaky cam. And it's got, like, horror movie, like, colour grading. They, like, despite there's all these bits in the middle that are not really attached to the story in any way, they actually surprisingly don't make it, like, lag. Like, they don't make the film feel slow. Because that was my complaint when I first watched it. I remember getting about an hour in and just being, and just being like, ugh. I think it was just one of the bits that we'll talk about afterwards, after the spoilers was just, like, not grabbing me, and I was just, like, fatigued and, like, uninterested. Mm. But this time around, I didn't have that. I think it may be because I was, like, forcing myself to pay attention. Mm. And yeah, all these bits in the middle, sort of, despite being almost completely unconnected, like, disconnected, they uh, managed to hold my attention, which is something that you want in your theatre movie. Oh, definitely. I th- your cinema movie. I think the the bits that really resonate with you aren't, the bits that everyone has quoted at you 15 to 20 times. It's the- Exactly. The, those bits are there and you're like, wow, like that's a, that's a you know, a piece of literal fucking comedy history that's like there. So, and it obviously resonated with a bunch of people and has been told ad hoc, uh, ad infinitum, sorry, um, by just about any British slash Australian person ever. So, the- the important bits of Holy Grail moving on and as time continues to roll away are the bits in between. The bits in between all of those larger scale, the bits that everyone knows, the fucking knights who say knee, um, the the silly French man at the top of the castle, like all of those gags are there and they're fine, but it's the bits in between. And on that note, let's head to the spoiler zone, Douglas. Why not? Uh... Why not? Um, uh, would you recommend this film? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I I think it's not a clean movie and it's not a precise movie in any way, shape or form. But again, I still think it is just one of those miracles of filmmaking where everything that I know that has gone on in the pre-production sense and everything that it is led to have had after make it worth watching in and of itself. And then, uh, yeah, some of the gags that are take up the spaces between are 
fucking timeless. They still make me laugh mm. stupid amounts. And even just, like, lines where I didn't really pay that much attention to them, but, like, just this certain delivery that one of the boys has while they do it, whatever, just, I don't know, just got me. So, yeah, definitely recommend it. Yeah, yeah, I would I would recommend it too. I, um, we, 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 we get this with comedy films uh, where they're, like, an hour and a half normally, and I think if this was a lot, like, longer, you would probably maybe not. It wouldn't be as good of an experience, but at an hour and a half, this one is like pretty, pretty slick. Um, felt good. wasn't wasn't fatigued by it, as it were. And it, it, I enjoyed it more than I remember enjoying it. Mm. So, uh, do we have any content warnings? Not really. Very nineteen seventies stupid violence. Uh... Yeah, I don't think there's anything. I mean, good on them for a seventies film and not having like a joke about. Like gay people or misogyny or transgender people yeah. or yeah, misogyny or anything. Um there's maybe an exception to that that I'm forgetting. Yeah, me but too. It I feels it, it pretty, feels like it it's there's clean. there's gotta be something. But I, you never know. The the flying the flying circus show strayed very heavily away from all of that stuff, I think, as well. So at least in the the earlier days of the seasons, like seasons one through three, I don't think there was ever anything that was um, misogynistic, transphobic, maybe, perhaps, but uh, misogynistic. Yeah, they never really played into that angle. So, hmm. Mm. Well, we'll have a little noise, and we're now in the spoiler zone. We will not that it really matters, but if you're desperate, uh, we will spoil some of the stuff in this film past this point. Funny, Douglas, that you brought this up because I said I like the bits in the middle. Um, and you said Frenchmen, Knights Who Say Nay, the two comfortably unfunniest bits yeah. in the. Yeah. And I think the reason that people like them is because they're easier to quote. Yeah. Yeah. Like a string of insults, it's funny for a string of insults type bit. Like it is creative. For a string of insults type bit, it's not funny, but it's it could be a lot worse. <laughs> the knights who say knee is completely. It's very surprising uh, how uh, much everyone's latched onto that bit because yeah, I think they're just quote they're more quotable because there's just nothing going. Yeah, on in them. yeah, it's easier to quote than like the fucking holy hand grenade of Antioch or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. guess true. Which is. The Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch is, I think it is. What are my favorites? I think it's clearly. Absolutely. I think it's clearly they've like looked at the, I think it's the Royal Orb. Yes. Yeah. Whatever it is that the. And gone like, hmm. It's like the Apple of Eden or some shit like that. And the fact that they very conveniently cut out Galahad from that whole shot so they can have Michael Palin being the cleric reading the fucking book. Like it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just very. Smart. <laughs> One, two, five, um, three, yeah. seven, three. <laughs> uh, is there is there a deeper meaning to him fucking up five and three all the time? I don't know. Pro- I think it's <laughs> I think it's just supposed to be like commentary on King Arthur's pure inability to actually like rule and be a king. Yeah, they they're constantly undermining him and painting him as this complete fucking buffoon. Really, so. Um, mm. 
Yeah, yeah. As for like, just same for the whole like the whole round table. They're constantly painted as just these jackasses who are just running around who are thinking they're higher than everybody else who's around them, and then ending up fucking shit up. My favorite bit, and will continue to be my favorite bit every single time I watch this movie. Uh, so Lancelot running towards the castle and cutting to the guards and they're like yeah. just sitting there like squinting and looking away at the distance and then the exact <laughs> same shot the same <laughs> him running towards the cut like fucking John Cleese is sprinting that shit as well like he's going hard um, that bit will forever be my favourite bit because it lasts the perfect amount of time. The payoff is great. Fucking Juggler's going, ah! and like stabbing the shit out of both the guards. It's, yeah. No, so that's the trick. He stabs one of the guards, runs past it, and the other one's like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> it's another details thing. Like, it's so good. And then when he's, after he's had his like little tirade through the castle and he gets up to the top, the one guard at the top is like, Wait, so are we supposed to, like, and then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they Payoffs. The payoffs are great. subtly, yeah. yeah. When you, when you just, when you forget about it. a joke, there's, like, a payoff, like, that's, like, that just sneaks in that, like, reminds you of that joke and gives you closure to that and then introduces mm. a new joke for you to look at as well. Another payoff bit that I did not- I can't believe I didn't even see it. Uh, you were talking very briefly about the how they address the fact that, you know, they use coconuts and everything and the whole African-European swallow uh, debate. The yeah. When we're introduced to Shabedavir, the opening shot of him is him holding a dove with a coconut tied, oh, yeah. to, the, tied to his fucking foot <laughs> yes. and he throws it away. I can't believe I never noticed that before. Like, I always thought he was just, like, <laughs> throwing away a dove. Like, I just never really, like, put it together. I don't know. I just that fucking annihilated me. I was like, "Oh my god, it's fucking so better be just releasing coconuts off into the wild." It's it's interesting that I don't find the swallow ongoing bit uh, as unfunny as, even though I think that one is also fairly quote. I think people mostly quote the the bit from the sorcerer Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is. Uh, I, maybe, maybe what I don't know. It feels like with some of these bits that, like, even the Frenchman, it seems like they're ad libbing, mm. which, which maybe feels off because I think a lot of their other stuff is pretty well crafted. Mm. The Tim bit, like, there are some who call me Tim, is like confirmed to be like he forgot the name that his character was supposed to be, <laughs> and they just rolled with yeah. it. Yeah. So maybe it's the I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I, I I like his character. He's 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 pretty funny. And I, the the intro, everything else about the intro is so funny. I mean, like when you have the backstory, I think the backstory that makes that joke a lot funnier. Where people are like, "Huh, it's funny that he has like a simple name because you don't expect that." And it's like, yeah, that is the basis of comedy. <laughs> that is the most basic. And I'm not shitting on them for doing it, but it is not like some incredible masterstroke it's just how jokes work yeah like it's funny that the chicken crossed the road to get to the other side because we expected a real explanation congratulations you've worked you've worked comedy out but through that whole bit where they're talking to him and he's just like doing random like fire yeah. stuff <laughs> in the middle of his conversation yeah, yeah. that gets me for some yeah. reason maybe because it's slightly higher effort. yeah yeah <laughs> I guess they had to, you know, you can't just go like, I'm going to ad-lib shooting fire out. Yeah, so. yeah. There's a there's more planning behind it 
Yeah. I did miss this, actually. This with the... Maybe this should have been in the content warnings. I feel like there's an implicit joke that the princess is ugly because she's overweight in, like, the wedding thing. It's fine. Whatever. Where they, like, cut... He's like, oh, I don't want to marry her. And then they, like, cut away and she's, like, a bit chubby. Oh, yeah, true. Is just me? Mm. It might just be me. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it could be um, implied as that, though. Yeah. I... It, it it felt it felt implicit to me. It's not really the end of the world, like whatever. Mm. But um, well, Douglas, yeah, we've done it. Another comedy movie. <laughs> we've hit thirty minutes and we've got nothing. To talk about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to think whether there's. It can be a short episode, baby. You're only yeah, I guess. Yeah, you, you have my blessing. Yeah, we always say this: comedy films are very, very hard to talk about. Because it's it's difficult to really... to talk about it without just being like I like this bit, um, yeah. Mm. I think uh, <clears throat> the thing I always come back around to is just that it's every single step of the way it's deconstructing making a film and like going against the grain of filmmaking, which at the time had been pretty well established, you know, like 50 odd years, 60 odd years since the introduction to cinema, the world had seen enough cinema to kind of fall into a flow and a rhythm of how films are made and even comedy films. I'm pretty sure Blazing Saddles was 1974 and everyone fucking loves that film for better or for worse. Um, So I think to have this film go against all of those ideals and all of those principles is just wonderful in and of itself. But then to have some genuinely understatedly good bits in and amongst it makes it, yeah, just that itty little bit better. I completely, I never understood the gag around the Castle of Anthrax, but uh, definitely caught that one now. (laughs) (laughs) That that the yeah, they the, managed, the segments good comedy Douglas and they managed to do it with no n words yeah and no f slurs mm. so uh, uh uh fuck you blazing exactly. saddles yeah um, you can you can be better than this it's it, this isn't even like a like ooh you can't see anything anymore fucking issue which if you are a comedian you say it or if you're a comedy viewer and you say it um fucking grow up yeah. by the way but whatever um. No, it's like the punchline of the joke being a bad word means that you are you don't have anything funny to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off about the Castle of Anthrax. You clearly wanted to talk oh, about it. Oh, just the made me think of the I think my favorite bit of the film is when Arthur is told by God, you know, you have to go and get the Holy Grail and then it's like, okay, they all split mm. up and they all have their own little adventure thing that they do. Um, I think Sir Robbins is probably the weakest one, although it is a relatively good gag. I think his one is the weakest one. It just seems a bit kind of like half-assed. Um, yeah. Sir Galahad's is probably one of my favourites just because of how Michael Palin acts that. And then right when he's like, oh, yeah, I could hang around for a little bit. And then fucking John Cleese goes, he's like, nope, time to go. I, was, I came in just the right time. <laughs> is I've saved your chastity. Yeah. So Galahad, the chase. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, I think. 
oh, all those bits are great. And we've uh, we've forgotten the other best bit in the film is the historian. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Like people, like we, we, I mean, we mentioned this with the great opening. Chekhov's gun. Um, uh, people go like, I mean, I think even the Monty Python guys said like, we didn't know how to fucking end this movie. Like, we don't know how to end end a movie. Well, they never and- know how to end a sketch, let alone a fucking movie. Yeah. But I think that is an excellent ending because it's like this little thing. Number like the the original bit is great, and every time it comes back, it's funny. Mm. And then for it to like come full, it, full like, circle, become yeah, the yeah. closer, so good, and completely really, 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 blue like, ball an audience to like a you know like a the promise of like a giant fight scene with like you know yeah uh, battle of um, fucking Helm's Deep level of you know. Uh, spectacle yeah. and scale and all those extras and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great final fuck you to an audience that you, you yeah, kind of can't <laughs> help but laugh at and appreciate as well. Yeah. Um. Well, if you didn't have anything else to to talk on, there are an absurd amount of uh, trivia for this film, so I might rattle you can off make up for not having any trivia last week. Might yeah, exactly. I might rattle off some of these and then that might prompt. Further discussion, especially since I did say that a lot of the pre-production stuff of this film is what makes it very interesting. So, um, allow me to divulge some uh, possibly, we think, true tidbits of trivia from the IMDb (laughs) trivia page of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and Genesis all contributed to this movie's budget. Oh my goodness! Okay, that that's very funds fun. earned by Pink Floyd's album "The Dark Side of the Moon" went towards funding this movie. The band were such fans of the show that they would halt recording sessions just to watch Flying Circus. Holy shit! That's fucking insane. One of the greatest that's selling wild. albums of all time, and they fucking pumped their like what earnings they had. Obviously, like what they could fucking spare, I guess, over to the Monty Python boys and just went make a film. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane to me. I have a, actually, I have heard that tidbit before. I think yeah. that seems so wild to That's me. Cool mm. During one of the first screenings of this movie in front of a live audience, co-writer and co-director Terry Jones noticed that when music was played during the jokes, there was a marked reduction of laughter from the audience. He went back and edited the music out whenever a punchline was delivered. At subsequent screenings, he noticed a dramatic increase in the audience's positive reactions to the jokes. From that point on, whenever he directed, he remembered to stop the music for the funny parts. Interesting. That's... Such like a cool thing as well because it's like it's not, um, it's not a laugh track, but it is also sort of like priming the audience for a joke yeah. in like yeah. a very natural way. Mm. Whenever you want them to laugh, you want them to hear the gag very properly and to be able to sit in silence comfortably enough to laugh at the gag as well. Yeah, mm. Mm. very true. The famous depiction of galloping horses by using coconut shells, a traditional radio show sound effect, came about from the purely practical reason that the production simply could not afford real horses. Yeah. <laughs> I love the huge string of knights at the end who are all, all going, going coconut 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 horses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very clever. Uh, yes, some believe the Enchanter's name is Tim because John Cleese forgot the character's original name and ad-libbed the line. There are some who call me Tim. However, Cleese disputes this. During a 2018 live tour, he said there was no improvisation in the final movie. I don't believe you, John. <laughs> 
We watched the Frenchman scene, John. <laughs> we all I don't get believe it, you John. on the slightest. <laughs> it's the way that he like pauses and it. Yeah, but and, John Cleese is like, he's very good at making and, like, dialogue lift. natural. Have you seen Faulty Towers? Like he is so good at making a scripted gag feel very like off the cuff. That's something he was always like a dab hat at. Yes. Mm. You fucking cynic. Graham Chapman was the only mm. member of the cast to wear real chainmail armor. It weighed about 25 pounds. The rest of the cast wore knitted wool painted to look like metal. The weather conditions <laughs> in Scotland and England being what they normally are, the actors spent most of the shooting days being very cold and wet. To make matters worse, the hotel where they were staying only had a limited number of baths and hot water. At the end of each location shooting, there was a dash to see who could get back to the hotel first. The Monty Python troupe <laughs> all seemed to agree that they did not enjoy much of the filming experience for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny as Just fuck. sad oh, and wet and tired and yeah. feeling like nothing's working and yeah. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. I can imagine. In the killer rabbit scene, a real white rabbit was used. He was dyed with what was assumed to be a washable red colouring liquid in the shots after the battle. When filming wrapped, the rabbit's owner was dismayed to learn the dye could not be rinsed off. Terry Gilliam described in an audio commentary that the owner of the rabbit was present and shooting was abruptly halted, halted while the cast desperately attempted to clean the rabbit before the owner found out. An unsuccessful attempt. He also stated that he thought that had they had been more experienced in filmmaking, the crew would have just purchased a rabbit instead. Otherwise, the rabbit was unharmed. The rabbit bite effects were done via special puppetry via Terry Gilliam and special effects technician John Horton. Special special puppetry effects. <laughs> Is that what we're calling them? Yeah. <laughs> special effects technician. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny when you yeah you like the 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 visual uh uh dissonance between the rabbit sort of just hanging out and like bouncing around and then like the like bloodthirsty yeah. rabbit being like this papa being like tossed, tossed to around and yeah shit. and they're going <laughs> uh it's pretty good when this movie screamed at the Cannes Film Festival, the audience laughed at the opening credits. However, the projector stopped and the audience just roared with laughter, thinking it was all a part of the movie. It turned out there was a bomb scare and firemen came in and it made everyone in the cinema go outside. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't mention the opening. I said I was going to. I I, I, I think it primes you Also, for, weak, weak. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Primes you for the mood. Uh, yeah. Prim- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gives you gives you an understanding of just how silly it is about how to be. How stupid, yeah. People responsible for sacking the people who have been sacked have been sacked. <laughs> so on and so forth. John Cleese and Terry Gilliam performed all of their stunts during the duel between Black and Green Knight. They both had to learn to manage big and heavy swords and do some acrobatics, though never being recognisable wearing heavy armour and full helmets. They avoided the use of stuntmen because, as they said in commentaries, they had a lot of fun in enacting the duel. <laughs> That's awesome. Was it? It's like That's a pretty, really cool. yeah, it's a pretty like- hefty choreographed duel as well. Like some of the hits and stuff mm. in there, I was like, "Ooh, yeah, let's go!" Very good. They're like pulling, yeah, yeah. like hitting them in the side of the helmet. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty solid. The Black Knight was first played by John Cleese, but when Arthur cuts off the first leg, a real one-legged actor, a local silversmith, was used. On the DVD, Terry Gilliam reveals that a marionette was used to film the shot of the second leg being cut off. He also <laughs> jokes that using the one-legged silversmith for the shot of the night with no legs saved work, since they only had to dig a hole for one leg. <laughs> <laughs> I um, 
I don't think they needed to tell us in the fucking DVD bonus extras that they used a marionette because you can see clearly it's like lifted up and like the like sword hits it and it sort of like crumples into the yeah. sword. But um, I was wondering about like how there was only the, the one legged thing. I was like, wow, they've really hidden that other leg away, huh? Yeah. No, that's that's hilarious. Well, it was just a one legged <laughs> dude. <laughs> don't work smarter, not harder. Yeah, exactly. Especially with a low budget. The Monty Python crew generally considered this to be one of their lesser movies, despite its popularity. John Cleese often says they think Life of Brian is their best work, but it is also to do with their bad memories of the filming of this particular movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, potentially. So Michael Palin played the most characters. He played 12. Didn't realize it was a sir. Yeah. I think a fair few of them are, actually. Um, Interesting. Maybe it is just Michael Palin. I don't know, but hmm. According to Terry Jones, the scene with Lancelot and Concord required 20 takes. While the second take was perfect, the cameraman noticed that there was a lot of smoke in the background. At one point, an annoyed John Cleese quipped, quote, Well, was the smoke funny enough? End quote. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, can, I can exactly hear that in John Cleese's voice. Yeah, absolutely. He had a very quick temper, Mr. Cleese. So, yeah. Mm. In an auction of movie costumes in March of 2007, the helmet worn by Sabedevia sold for $29,000, more than 10 times the original estimate. <laughs> That's, uh, and, and it was bought with good reason, by Douglas. Jonathan. <laughs> and by me, baby. Uh, unusually for a Monty Python feature, all the female roles, apart from Dennis's mother, played by Terry Jones, were played by women. In Monty Python's Flying Circus, Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life, almost all of the female roles were played by men. Huh. They did like to <laughs> dress up and play the female roles. Actually, yes, especially in Life of Brian. Yes, they do. Well, it's an entire bit in the Life exactly, of Brian. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, Patsy, the uh, guy with the coconuts who follows King Arthur around, only has one line in the movie. It's only a model. <laughs> oh. At Camelot. Oh, yeah, of course. The other one was um, the other one was a different- The one who gets shot is a different yeah, guy. Yeah, different dude. Yeah, different yeah. Different character. Polko, yeah. get help. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Terry Gilliam dies more than any other actor in this movie, with a grand total of four deaths, as the Green Knight with a sword through the face, as the Boar's decapitated by the Killer Rabbit, as the Animator with a heart attack, and as the Bridge Keeper at the Gorge of Eternal Peril, flying into the space. John Cleese and Terry Jones, by contrast, have no death scenes in this movie at all. The Animator is so good. I love that yeah. shit. Like, the way that that's animated, where he just goes, and then just, like, pivots perfectly <laughs> yeah. on an axis, just, like, falls over. I love the animation as well. I mean, like, I feel like people almost forget the animation in this film um, and how, like, creative it is, even if it is a bit silly sometimes. Yeah, yeah. In the Castle Anthrax sketch, Galahad suspects that Lancelot is gay, which Lancelot flatly denies. In the Swamp Castle sketch, Lancelot meets the effeminate ladylike Prince Herbert, or Alice, who seems to be gay, although this is never clearly stated. In the 2006 Spamalot stage show, Herbert is clearly stated to be gay and helps Lancelot come out of the closet. Oh. (laughs) That's fucking sick. (laughs) All right, you want to wrap it up one more? Yeah, nah, that's it. That's all I got. That's all you got. All right, well, perfect. Uh, I'm looking at the timer. We gotta go. Well, if you've if you've enjoyed extremely trivia-filled episodes <laughs> of the Two Five O podcast, we do them every week, Tuesday midnight Australian Eastern Standard Time, which comes out to Monday afternoons in Europe and Monday mornings in America. Douglas, where can people go if they want more info on the podcast? 
If you'd like more info on the podcast, you can go to www.250.com. There's a list of IMDb's top 250 films of all time as of January 2020 on the homepage there. There's two links to listen to us. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but you can also listen to us wherever good podcasts are sold. There is a link to get in touch with us via email. That's mail at 250.com. And then there's a link to find us on Instagram, which is at T-W-O-F-I-V-E-O-H-P-O-D, 250pod. And we generally recommend that's the best way to keep in touch with us. Hmm. Uh, Douglas and I both use Letterboxd, which is a movie tracking and reviewing website that we're great big fans of. My account on Letterboxd is Upa, that is U-U-U-P-A-H, and Douglas. You looked up like you had to think about, like, <laughs> how many U's was in that. I just wanted to lean back. I just want to keep my neck straight. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, my account is Ienzo Knight, I-E-N-Z-O-K-N-I-G-H-T, Ienzo Knight. You can look up Upa or Ienzo Knight in the Letterboxd search engine and you'll find our respective profiles. Uh, we do written reviews of all the films that we talk about here in the 250, as well as any other films that we watch in our spare time. I managed to sneak away and watch The Raid, 2011's Indonesian The Raid. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you a little something about The Raid. Let me tell you something about The Raid. I didn't realise that there was an English dub version, right? So, I go and watch it, and I start watching the English dub version, and I was like, well, for starters, this sucks, like, the dub sucks, but, like, something just feels wrong. And it's not just the dub, it's not just the voice acting that feels wrong. Feels like it's, it feels very devoid of like pace or action or like intensity from how I remembered it. So I was like, fuck this noise. I watched like 20 minutes of it and I was like, fuck this. I've got to go find the Indonesian version. I find the Indonesian version. I start playing it. Watch those first 20 minutes back. Oh my God. The English dub guys just completely fucking butchered the sound design. Like they just took the sound design that was in the original film and just went, Nah, fuck that. You completely delete that soundtrack. Get rid of that shit. We're doing it our own. And then they just got some yobos doing fucking Foley in, like, a very soundproof studio. Like, there's no sense of depth. There's no sense of, like, weight or anything. There's no depth in any of the Foley or sound effects or anything. And that's, like, I didn't realise how important Foley and sound effects and everything are to an action film. Like... Especially a martial arts action film, like, it's so fucking important. Like, it added so much more weight and power and intensity to so many of the scenes that it was basically the only fucking thing that I was paying attention to for the rest of the film. It's so fucking kinetic when you add in that sound design in amongst all of it. And I didn't realise how many Dutch tilts it had. They are... Really going hard on all those Dutch tilts. So. Tilty. Um, Call it a style, baby. Yeah, just for the love of God, don't watch English dub. Uh, you'll be sorely disappointed. But the the concept is great. The execution is fucking immaculate. And I think coming from a dancer's perspective, I really, truly appreciate the level of choreography that's going on here. Um, the The craftsmanship and skill that's on display is absurd. So, I want to watch some more martial arts films. I want to go back and watch some, like, old school martial arts stuff and see how that goes. But, anyway. I've had I've had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon on my hard drive for months now. It's one I want to watch. It. And there's, a, there's another one as well. It's like a Shaolin one. Uh, fuck, what's it called? Did you watch anything, Jonathan? I fucking didn't. No. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fair enough. It was honestly a struggle for me to squeeze this fucking podcast record yeah. in between all the other shit that I've been you've doing been a, this week. So. You've been a busy boy. I mean, non-stop, yeah. 
I was out till fucking 3.30 yesterday. Wow. Party animal. Mm, that's me, baby. I'm trying, I just, I really want to find out. Oh, there it is. There's a poster. I know that poster anyway. Uh, it is called the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. That's the next one that I want oh, to watch. Yeah. I've got that. I've got that downloaded as well. Oh, really? Holy shit. I do. I do. Um, looks really good. Uh, the rain is on the list, isn't it? No, it's not. Or is it? No. All right. Well, we need to get our butts in gear and do a- Do a bonus on that one? Yeah, absolutely. We could do it on the first one and the second one, if you wanted. Mm. I've watched the second one as well. Mm. Um, as have I. And, I. and I don't want to say anything more It's been about ages since I've seen it, it, but yeah, I wouldn't mind rewatching it. We can do a little- Do another little duo one. Put them back to back. Yeah, I like really. it. Well, thank you for tuning well, into the 250. Uh, we've got to let Jonathan here get back to his busy, busy schedule of- um, i got to move this cabinet now. <laughs> I need to basically- I basically- I am, So, what I'm doing, I'm making dinner. I'm going to make a, a fat bowl of ragu. i got to vacuum because the whole weekend is gone and I haven't vacuumed. And I need to completely disassemble a cabinet, move my dining table so I can move the new cabinet in. Move an entire Monstera plant and a printer and then set my new fucking cabinet up. And then uh, I think just die. I think I'll just die, actually. Tune into next week's episode of the 250 where you get to hear Jonathan complain more about things and also get closure as to whether he actually- (laughs) He just gave the most, like, dignified little fucking, like, head, like, you motherfucker. (laughs) Okay, goodbye. Before Jonathan kills me, I I gotta leave now. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you Uh, bitch. (laughs)